0: is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Well, welcome back to an episode of The Natural Philosopher, and I'm incredibly excited because I have my very first interview. And why not start with the first person I ever wrote a book with, Claire Harvey. Welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Mick. It's good to be here.
0: Okay. So um, we're going to be having a conversation in the next couple of programs. And I'd like to start with um, a theme. And this is a discussion you and I have had uh, a fair bit over the time. So we, uh, just for listeners' benefit, Claire and I first met uh, with an organisation called Ethos, the EA Centre for Christianity and Society. And it was part of the Climate Change Think Tank. And then we went on to write a book together, which was uh, a fun fun time, uh, a climate, uh, get me, which book is it? A Climate of Hope, Church and Mission in a Warming World. So that's Claire Dawson and Dr. McPope. Putting the doctor on the cover was not my idea. But the, no one gets to write a book or be part of a think tank or do, what was it carbon accounting or all the sorts of things that we're going to talk about today without a significant journey. And both Pope John Paul II and Pope Francis talk about an ecological conversion So I'm wondering if you could talk to us for a a little bit about what your ecological conversion experience was.
1: Mm, It's interesting, actually. I wonder if I had a reconversion in that I have some fairly clear memories of year year eight geography, Uh, learning about, we called it global warming back then, fairly sure. Uh, We sat in class and my teacher actually played a song by Sting called Fragile, and we talked about Antarctica, and I was a Sting fan. Um, Well, actually, and I talk about this in A Climate of Hope, he was probably one of my prophets in terms of fighting for the Amazon and songs about what good is a used-up world and how could it be worth having. Uh, So sort of prompting ethical, philosophical reflection. Mm. I was not a Christian at that time. As much as I went to a church school, it was more of a grammar school, so it was him singing and assemblies um, and RE, but I hadn't connected the dots. I remember actually in year 11 or 12 having a locker conversation with another girl who I knew was a person of faith. And I said, I just don't get it. You know, there's your Hitler's of the world and your mother Teresa's of the world and somewhere there's a line where you're good enough, but I'm not sure where the line is. So that's 13 years at a church school and dabbling in Sunday school but also doing things like going to ashrams with my mother as a young child because she was on her own journey of, uh, you know, of searching. Um, So I clearly hadn't uh, been captured by grace because I was wondering how good you had to be. Mm. (laughs) So that, that, um, that evangelical kind of conversion happened for me at 18. um, And I had, developed concerns about the world. During my teens, I decided I wouldn't have kids. I sort of saw the writing on the wall. Um, We went to the Space Center in, um, I think it was 92. I was about 16. This is in Florida, Orlando. And they were exploring space to try and find other habitable planets. And it's sort of one of those kick in the guts moments to go, really? Is it that bad? And is this the only solution mm. um, so those sorts of things um, I don't know I guess I processed them reasonably quietly and might even have forgotten them but that very trip is when I started keeping journals so I started a travel journal and my journals have con- continued since then so it's fascinating to go back and look at the questions I was asking where's God is there hope why would you bring kids into this kind of world that seems pretty stuffed? I don't understand how that's a gift to anyone. Mm. Um, So there, that's some of the angst that I guess fueled my search for um, meaning grace, hope, life fulfillment. But unfortunately in a way, although God uses all these things, doesn't he? uh, I was sort of converted into your sort of classic evangelical Pentecostal dualistic worldview and nurtured for that in, um, nurtured into that for years. So unfortunately I had almost an eco unconversion where I was told that this stuff and these concerns didn't matter. And because this was coming from respectable people with theological qualifications who had done mission and ministry for decades, what would I know? And so I took that on board, you know, tree huggers were just lost kind of liberal people that had let the gospel fall away and, you know, uh, throwing their baby out with the bathwater. And so there was a lot of cynicism and, um, uh, yeah, that meant that I then had to go on another journey of finding my way back.
0: So did during that time, did you feel that tension in church? Was that something that was always in the back of your mind or did the, what I, what I guess sounds like the very band-aids or dismissive solutions that kind of salve your conscience or comfort you? Yeah, I, time?
1: I, um, I was offered an opportunity to undertake an internship at a large, um, oh, you call them a mega church, I guess, Bible Belt Melbourne Church. That involved me going off to do theological study and sort of serving in the church. It's a three-year program. Uh, That gave me permission to sort of read more broadly, more widely, introduced to, you know, um, people like Brueggemann and... Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to lose all the names now, but yeah, to read more widely. And uh, people like Brian Edgar are really influential. He was a uniting church minister, but evangelical. I think in an ethics class, most people chose your classic Christian ethics issues for their essay content, um, divorce, abortion, euthanasia. But I actually looked at creation care and sort of said, what if this is something we're missing and in a hundred years, we're going to look back, like we look back at things like slavery and go, how did we miss that? Um, And I guess I was um, also reading Brian McLaren and connecting in with more of the emerging church models and connecting with people uh, through forge. So that helped as well. I think that uh, essay I wrote for Brian was formative. And then I took some of those ideas back to my mega church and didn't really get very far with them. Uh, But I think it was enough to have started me on a journey. And once you connect with people at affirm it, um, you open up these avenues for further conversation, inspiration, learning, reading, thinking, and it's never stopped. But I'm back in the Uniting Church, which is not a huge surprise, I guess.
0: Yeah, there's a few things to unpack there. It, one of the things I'm constantly finding talking to people, um, connecting in this space is that sense of isolation and loneliness. When you start to unpack issues that people in the pews, sorry, I'm reflecting my Anglican heritage, or the plastic chairs or whatever you sit on. Um, as soon as you start to unpack those issues then you feel fairly alone because you're not hearing it from up front you're not hearing from leadership and and people alongside you might look at you strangely or just maybe even closer to home sometimes Um, probably worth to just for the benefit of listeners uh, explaining well it might be worth talking briefly about where it was you studied and what forge is for example I mean I know you, you and I know but and why they were significant things?
1: Yeah. Um, so I studied at the Bible College of Victoria uh, out in Lilydale. It's having its 100th year this year. So it has a long history. Actually, going back in its uh, day, it was quite radical because the done thing for anyone in the Anglican church would be to have gone to Ridley. Mm. And the whole point of Bible College was to prepare you for ministry. But the radical idea was, what if people need to understand how to handle the Word of God responsibly and wisely, but their end goal isn't a pulpit or even a congregation? What if they're going to be in the workplace or on the mission field? Or what if they just want to learn and prepare themselves and they don't even know what for? And that was very much the category I was in. I remember actually talking to Brian Edgar because I'd written a few essays along the lines of, you know, I guess, um, Uh, incarnated lived Christianity as an apologetic, you know, we've got to live it. People aren't asking us the reason for our hope because there's nothing in our life that they strike up against that begs questions. Mm. I've written these kind of angsty pieces as part of my own journey of going, I'm trying to share my faith with people that are, atheists, that are Hindus, that are Buddhists, that are Muslims, that are Jews, and there's no traction. They're just sort of not interested. It's not cutting through. I, had, I was a really frustrated evangelist, and that's partly why I went to Bible college, because people had questions for me that I couldn't answer, and I had questions that were really important for me that I couldn't answer either. Um, so that was um, great for me. Um, Ricky Watts is probably one of the reasons I chose that. So some of our listeners surely will know Ricky Watts, but I missed him by a year or two because he'd left and gone to it. So that was bitterly disappointing, but that's okay. Uh, Forge was uh, started by the likes of Al Hirsch and it was um, the Australian experiment um, in terms of thinking about church more missionally rather than the classic attractional models of you come to us and we're going to tell you what it looks like to be a Christian. It's more, well, how about we embed ourselves in different communities, read the Bible afresh and figure out what it might look like in that context to be the people of God.
0: Mm. And the shape of things to come wrote with Mike Frost is, I think I mentioned it in a previous program and that was quite, when I was starting to think about mission and ecology as echo mission. uh, That was quite um, significant just wondering uh, i'm hearing all sorts of dualisms come out uh there's the earth versus heaven typical dualism and then there's the secular versus um christian vocation it it just seems that we christianity still has a real problem in places and times of of being double-minded in its approach have you found that you can sew that back together so uh some people who are into the eco mission space aren't very focused on evangelism um, in the quote unquote. Uh, I hate labels, but you know the more liberal space, and a, and indeed we we spend a fair bit of time in groups like ARC, Australian Religious Response to Climate Change, working with people of other faiths. Have you sewn all this back together in your mind that you know it's not just evangelism that you do, or maybe you set that to the side, or that you get involved in? climate change justice or, or whatever um and that's not a front for your evangelism but that the two are of one piece now in your head or in your life yeah
1: i think it's it's a gradual and ongoing process of integration or reintegration um for me i i, I guess a few years ago i would have said it doesn't have to be either or it can be both and in, ten, in terms of you, you, you don't do climate action at the expense of evangelism necessarily. Now, People in, who think in terms of dollars and cents would. Well, if we give to this cause, we have less to give to that other cause. Mm. Um, and I would say it doesn't have to be like that. You can do both. But I guess a more integrated pro- approach would say it's not that you can but that we must that we can't separate these things out. And uh, going back to I think I thought I had that I didn't finish, Brian Edgar actually said when um, everyone was graduating, we were finishing, people cross the stage, get their qualification, I did a Master of Divinity, and they tend to say I'm heading into parish ministry or this church or the mission field or this organisation. I didn't really know. And I had a chat with Brian and I said, oh, I think one of my goals in the short to medium term is to be uh, going to be trying to live out some of the things that I wrote about in my essays. Even an exegetical essay, you'd have an application section. You write an exegetical essay on the rich man and Lazarus. So (laughs) that's jam-packed full of implications for us in terms of justice and mercy and what we do with the poor Uh, right in our midst, the ones that we see and might know, but what do we do with the global poor whose names and faces are always, uh, going to be mysterious to us, but we know they're there. Mm. So there was definitely that desire to live it out. And I actually spent years, uh, trying to get my life right, trying to live with integrity and consistency, uh, including around creation care, environmental concern, climate change, uh, and then I got to a point of realising that would be a lifetime's work. And if I waited to speak or write about it, if I waited till I felt I had enough integrity, it would never happen. Because mm-hmm. that's part of the futility, isn't it? You feel this futility of going, I'm doing all I can, but it's still not enough. And as a, Western, a middle-class Western person, my life is full of compromise and I kind of don't know how that's ever going to change.
0: That's a really interesting just to go back right to the start, we talked about ecological conversion. That sounds like a genuine conversion because you talked at the start about being in a Christian school and not getting grace and asking the questions about, am I good enough? And now you've just said, okay, in this other context in the West, I'm never going to be quote unquote good enough, whatever that means, but I can't stop. It's like, okay, there's still a plank in my eye, (laughs) but I'm going to charge forward and talk about the planks everywhere else because. You're right. You'll ne- you'll never in our setting, and it's interesting to look at the numbers and and see that in the middle of a global pandemic, and no one's flying, and no one's doing this, that, and the other, and the the emissions are a, a mere blip, which says, okay, uh, I might have a consumer lifestyle, but I live in the consumer West, and um, so long as the system is the way that it is, I can do all sorts of things. But you're gonna have to work incredibly hard and probably end up on a a plot of land with no running water and no electricity or, you know, I'm exaggerating, but to, to be quote unquote pure. Um, So that, that quest is not futile, but you can drive yourself mad in the pursuit of that. If you, if you let yourself.
1: Well, that's a good segue to the digs conversation, but we can come back to that if that's the wrong order.
0: Yeah. That's actually the second program because you talked a bit about decisions about kids And in the second half of the program, I want to talk about um, motherhood and children choices and your schoolwork, uh, because you started talking about the year eight geography. So that would be a nice way to tie that around. And then in the next program, we'll talk about your uh, more recent activism uh, activities, both the digs and um, running for local politics. But with that, uh, we're going to take a break and be back in a moment. Okay, welcome back to the program. Um, hopefully you're enjoying another voice on The Natural Philosopher. Uh, as I said at the end of the last uh, segment, I really want to explore now. So I'm a white, cis, hetero male talking about all these issues and you know we're only half the population or, or less if you've taken all those other factors into account. One of the things that struck me, well, a couple of things that struck me reading firstly about climate change impacts is that they're incredibly gendered. And so you can't talk about climate change without talking about how it um, it impacts women in, in, in a more severe sense. But particularly for this segment, I want to talk about the fact that there's, there's a huge, I don't know if it's a huge movement, but there's certainly rumblings and concerns and issues, and you touched upon it, about whether or not it's a sensible or a wise thing to have children. And I don't just mean that from a pragmatic sense, but also the fact that you know in the life-giving process a man's role is limited in space and time if you will in terms of the procreative act and then a woman brings that life to bear and fruition and and is typically not always the one most involved in in the child rearing so there's far more investment for want of a much better word you know again trying to get away from pragmatics but that relationship and that understanding of life-giving and how the existential threat of climate change and everything else or the climate crisis I prefer to talk about now um, impacts that decision. And I wonder if you could talk, you know, in, in whatever terms you feel comfortable um, about yeah. how that impacted you and, and your decision to have kids in the end and so on, your two lovely children.
1: Yeah. Cause I did allude to the fact that in my teens, I was fairly convinced that I wouldn't, um, but that was also, I can look back and say, well, I was without, hope without God, um, had no sense of meaning, uh, couldn't anchor my existence <laughs> into any sense of something being purposeful. Um, so that changed, obviously, in finding faith and digging into the scriptures. And for me, part of, I think, what was important and really formative in my journey, as much as I chose faith at 18, it was my choice. I completely owned it. I was effectively an emerging adult to the point that I was hiding my Bible under my bed. Whereas I know there'd be plenty of other people that grow up in the church and it's sort of their parents' decision and they turn 18 and they do, they have the opposite transition. They get to uni and they walk away. I got to uni just as I embraced this. Um, And I think, again, in this sort of more hyper-faith context, uh, I knew people that said, well, I will have as many children as God blesses me with and uh, trust that he will provide financially, emotionally, physically, spiritually. I'm like, wow. And I sort of admired their faith. Knew I was never going to be the kind of person to sort of push out half a dozen kids or more. Um, Probably knew enough that I didn't want an only child didn't think, think that was great in terms of the little prince syndrome and just yeah. You know, i think we we can talk about narcissistic individuals but i actually think our, our entire culture is characterized by narcissism so if you want to look at things like the propensity to um, feel entitled to exploit others to lack empathy um, which can be some traits of narcissists i think that's actually prevalent throughout our entire society and I don't know, my own experience was sometimes only children can, if they're not embedded in communities, can magnify that. Um, I don't know, it probably would have been different if the timing had been slightly different. I think some of the lights were really going on for me while I was pregnant, uh, which was a bit of an act of faith. I thought it was a good thing. It's what Christians do. You get married, you have a family. Um, but I actually remember writing something to my daughter, Sarah, before she was born, and it was a bit of an apology. Um, Sorry. I'm sorry already for the world that you're being brought into. I'll dig it out one day. Um, that's my nature to be apologetic. And Mick um, and I, do you remember we discovered after we wrote a book together that we were both I Yes. I and TJs have an overdeveloped sense of social responsibility. So here I am apologizing to my daughter for the state of the world. Like it's my fault. Um, so, yeah, stopping at one for envi- environmental reasons might have made sense. Um, but I also did want her to grow up with a sibling if possible, had two. As I said, were the timing different by just a couple of years in terms of my own journey, I think I would have potentially had none. But again, not my choice to make in that I'd chosen to marry someone that did want kids. Mm. Um, that's a difficult negotiation. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, sort of relationships fail over this one. If, you know, there's that line, people grow apart and, you know, others might say, well, you've got to let that not happen. But people go on spiritual journeys and have conversion, succession, successive conversions and it might be an eco-conversion or it might be an awakening to the fact that, they've grown up with this dualistic sense of the world and they don't buy into that in the same way anymore. What what happens when couples go through these things that really can generate deep rifts? Um, I don't know that we talk about that enough and the reality of what happens uh, when we find ourselves on really different journeys. So, yeah, the the timing's a really interesting one um, because I think my eyes were really just opening to... The significance of it. So 2007, I guess that's Al Gore's movie, that's one of the first climate, what was it called? Walk Against Warming. Um, You know, those early rallies um, before it got really nasty in terms of the politics. I remember that, you know, coming um, into that season where we wrote the book, it was such a political hot potato in the way that it's not quite now. You know, To say you cared about climate change meant that you aligned with Kevin Rudd or Julia Gillard and it was deeply political and churches didn't want to go there. They didn't want to talk about it and they didn't want to talk to me when I was trying to initiate and catalyse this role as a a carbon accountant and helping Mm. churches actually measure their carbon footprint and do something about it. They didn't want to talk to me because they knew whichever way they went, they would get some people in their congregation offside. To say this isn't real and it's not happening was to draw a line in the sand, but um, equally to choose to act, you'll lose a whole lot of support as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I still get a bit of a sense that it's a, a polarising issue. Um, I, I have no sense of the numbers. <laughs> uh, you and I both know that those who are somewhat more sceptical always seem to be those that get heard and, and heard later. I actually shared in last week's program about going all the way to Brisbane to give a talk as part of a, a nonviolent direct action workshop and have a climate ch- change skeptic. Um, totally take over. Tell me I was a Marxist for my interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan and just be there in, a, in a, that space and, and dominating. And that just tends to be the way that it is. Um, that makes us watermelons.
1: Have you been called a watermelon?
0: No, I've never been called a watermelon. What's that mean?
1: Green on the outside and red on the inside.
0: Oh, okay. I get it. There you go. I think I might own that. Although there are, there are racial overtones to watermelon too, which um, and one of the things I'm discovering and maybe you're this, the same, and I don't know if you can reflect upon this tonight, is the intersectionality of, of climate change. Um, and would you identify it as a feminist issue? And would you identify yourself in any way, shape or form as as feminist and how those issues line up together? Or do you think that feminism provides a useful critique when we're, we're approaching the whole climate change issue? So as a, as a, you know, if you look at most of the captains of industry, most of the politicians leading us down the garden path, uh, most of the politicians who responded badly to COVID have all been white males.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Does the world need more more women in in, you know well well, that might
1: be something we touch on in the the part two particularly in terms of running for local government and needing uh, more women i wrote a pretty feisty piece during the week because i tried to call our local reporter to say there's a story in this because we risk uh ending up with an all-male council just the way things are playing out in my particular local government area and he sort of couldn't even make the connection Mm. you know i mentioned ruth in the states this judge and and he's like i can't i I don't understand i'm like because she said wherever decisions are being made we need women (laughs) and he's like oh he was sort of thinking it was a bit of a stretch and so i sat down and thought fine i wanted an article written um and the local journal is not going to do it so i'll write it myself um so yeah i would think that certainly um Things like that more nurturing, empathic, um, generative. Uh, So there's a whole thing which is generativity. So it's thinking about future generations. Mm -hmm. That tends to come with age and maturity and with sort of spiritual enlightenment, you could say. So more spiritual people tend to be more generative, thinking about the legacy Mm -hmm. they leave, what happens to future generations. Uh, I think... Women naturally are forced, whether or not they find that it's innate to them, they're forced yeah. into this more nurturing role if they become mums or when they become mums or even as aunts. So, some might be born like that. There are certainly little girls and some little boys that love to take care of dolls and pets, animals, anything wounded, band aids, let me heal you, let me treat you. That was not me. I was not naturally a sort of um, mercy hearted, nurturing kind of person, but I think your motherhood throws you in there whether you like it or not Mm. even um physically i noticed while pregnant and then particularly having had kids you would see your kid fall off a swing or something and i would literally feel a physiological pain response something within me would feel it that was new to me now i don't know other people might go oh i've always had that Um, But that was new to me to actually have these feelings in my body to see someone I care about encounter pain.
0: Mm. uh, Yeah. And it seems to me that that's, and it's what makes this whole climate and environmental activism difficult is that once you start to nurture those, you feel that for entire species or people overseas or, And I think that's people's coping mechanism is to shut all that out because they can't cope. Because once you open the floodgates, you're feeling the pain of, well, to go to Romans eight, creation and groaning and birth pains. And we could spin in a whole direction in terms of that passage too, couldn't we? Uh, We Again, there's that generative sense of the earth. And
1: um, And that's where too, maybe, maybe again, we are talking about gender. So as much as we want to avoid stereotypes and generalizations, that's the space of our conversation, Uh, Just thinking even about emotion, when you talk about uh, feeling pain uh, or feeling concern, um, like I think pre-traumatic stress syndrome is a thing. This is people who are stressed by what they're anticipating. I think around the time that we wrote A Climate of Hope, I was experiencing a a degree of that, Uh, having some sense of trauma or dread about what I anticipated was in the pipeline. Yeah, And I wonder, though, you know, this capacity to carry and share some of the world's pain, that's where we need lament and that's where we need to be able to gather and weep. But maybe our male structures have not meant that that's a safe, acceptable thing to do. Um, again, my own journey, I remember being at a sort of Lunchtime Students for Christ meeting and there was a girl next to me uh, worshipping but in tears and I sort of went up to her. Again, I was, this is early days and maybe not very integrated and I was on my own journey of emotional healing, I guess. I said, are you okay? She's like, oh, it's just the presence of God. It's just beautiful. And I looked at her and I go, what is that? Like, I wish I had that, mm. that she could weep just sensing the, the beauty um, and the peace that she found um, sensing she was in the presence of God and, and tears would come. And I, I associated tears with something being very wrong and I needed to fix it. Uh, And again, I think that's part of our Western, maybe more male emotions and bad. They say something's really wrong rather than it's cathartic. Let it go, let it out. Um, And one of the verses that I think has been helpful for me, um, or little texts, I guess, um, is from Ezekiel where these angels are instructed to go around and mark the foreheads of the people in Jerusalem who grieve, and lament over the wickedness and injustice. Mm. And then, I mean, this is where the story gets pretty frightening, they're then instructed to go and slay anyone that doesn't have the mark. But there was a sense they go and mark out the people who actually care, that sense there's something deeply wrong. Of course, part of my angst was I'm not doing enough, I haven't fixed the problem, I haven't solved this. Um, There's more that I can do. So you feel like a failure and you feel like you're not doing enough. But this text didn't say, go and mark the foreheads of people that are working for change, that are turning tables, that are speaking truth to power. It's like, go and mark the foreheads of people that are grieved and deeply concerned by what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, it was such a moment of comfort to go, even that, that heart to care and to see and to notice even in the mess of going, I can't fix this, even that is valuable in the sight of God. And that was really helpful for me. And this is probably the Enneagram one, the reformer thing of I've got to fix this and it's all my fault and it's all my problem to sort of actually go, it's bigger than that and and God's okay with the fact that I haven't fixed it.
0: Which reminds me, I'm still to sit down with the Enneagram. I have a friend who's got a theory on what I am, who is keen for me to do it. But uh, look, that looks like a, a good time to stop. Um, we've got another conversation coming up next program. So,
1: I don't know if that was a lighthearted enough note to stop on though. No, Anyway, I think, lament. Though. I think lament. I think yeah. that's one thing that I think the church actually has as a gift to give the world, um, to create safe spaces where people can come and be and let it all out. And I, I ran an Earth Hour event along those lines. This is in an era where everything has to have a hashtag and you've got to share it and post it and get traction and turn it into a thing. And I didn't have energy for it. Um, And all I did was let people know locally, there was um, Environment Victoria had a little hub and we were able to use that. So there was a venue that was free, made it easy. Mm -hmm. I just said, just come, we're going to pass a candle round, say why you're here, tell us about a place you love. Um, And I think there was one other question I asked, but I didn't have a petition. I wasn't trying to lobby anyone. And it was amazing the people who came that had not come to something in a while and the sense of catharsis of just come as you are, who you are, and express the fact that you care without being asked to do anything, without being manipulated as an instrument of some someone else's political agenda. I think people need more of that sort of safe spaces to just come and be a human being with their sadness and their hope and their mess and their pain. Um, And I think that's a gift that the church more than any other group is strategically positioned to give. So that's a more hopeful note to finish on, surely.
0: Oh, we didn't have to necessarily tie it up in that sense, but yeah, there's a lot of conversations to be had along those lines. I can think of people to have on to take that theme up in books. that carry that forward. And there's a thought for people to take into their week, stop and take that time to have a look around and think about the things that um, have been of significance to you or you actually generally love or places you've been and think about or people that you love or know um, and think about this whole how this whole crisis is impacting them and, and sit in that moment um, before you move forward. But catharsis is what we want, not just um, wallowing, but uh, you, yeah. know, you have to go through that. Well, with that, for the moment, I'd like to say thank you for being on The Natural Philosopher. You're and uh, It's been a
1: pleasure.
0: And uh, to my listeners, the regulars, uh, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.